Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 104. South Africa's history is peppered with chaos and warfare, perhaps more so than is apparent in the modern period. It's fairly difficult to explain how our past intermeshes with the present without focusing on moments of extreme violence. These incidents are part of our psychological makeup without most of us being aware of just how we were forged out of the sound of gunfire and the smell of blood. With that slightly theatrical introduction, let's delve into one of these moments during the period of the Impetkani, a battle that has taken on various forms in the telling based on what your political persuasion may be. This is the Battle of Umbolompo. The Battle of what? Many listeners would muse. Yes, folks, this rumpled sounding clash, the word conjuring up images of wordplay, Umbolompo, has as its main player a man called Matawani of the Ngwani. We met him in passing previously, but now we'll spend time telling his tale, and he has some significant storytellers backing him up. One is Albert Longwani, who published a book in 1938 called History of Matawani and the Amangwani Tribe, as told by Mzibenzi to his kinsman Albert Longwani. Mzibenzi was Matawani's grandson and born around 1850, 20 years after the Battle of Umbalumpo. Old man Msebenzi was quite a poet, and the history of the Matawani was entirely in Zulu, which is remarkable because the Battle of Mbalompo was fought west of Mtata in the Transkai. Matawani began life living on the White Imfolozi River and headed up the Ngwani people, from where he was driven by Zwide of the Ndwandwe out of Zululand. He fled westwards to Ntenjwa in the foothills of the Drakensberg, where the Hlubi and Zizi people originate. Matawani took on the mantle of the invader from the east predating on the people nearby, and by the late 1820s he'd compelled the local defeated chiefs to give up their eldest sons and their fattest cattle in exchange for being left alone. These people, west of Zululand, just could not cope in general with the militarized folks heading their way, like Mzilikazi, and Matawani was no different. When Shaka eventually defeated Zwede and laid claim to all Nguni-speaking people along these ridges, Matawani realized he could no longer hold his ground and then relocated once more. Msebenzi, the poet, explained this by saying that Matawani wanted to move away from Shaka, that he may not get at me while still being fed. It were better that he reach me when hungry. I shall climb over the mountains and get to the top and settle there. Matawani did in fact climb the Drakensberg and settled in the Highfelt beyond until his power was challenged in 1827, and from there his control over matters unraveled spectacularly. The first blow was a direct assault by the Zulu and observed by French missionary T. Arbousset. The Zulus crossed the Caledon River while the Nguani fled to a place called Firfut near modern-day Klokalayan in the Free State. The Nguani fought off the Zulu impi of unknown name at Lady Brand in today's Free State, but we do know that the impi was led by Shaka's brother, Dingan. The man, of course, who murdered Shaka in 1828. The Nguani lost their cattle. Matawani began to think about moving further south and sent two regiments called the Ushi and the Nsimbi on a reconnaissance mission to spy out the land of the Tembu. The Tembu, you know, lived in the highlands of what is now the Eastern Cape and Transkai and were directly associated with Amatkoza. Before the two impis returned, Sutu King Mushweshere was to intercede. 
There's a lot of muttering about what happened, but the gist of this is that Motawani got word that his alliance with Moshweshwe was tainted by the Sutu leader who had apparently doctored presents he had sent to the Ngwani leader. This doctoring led Matawani to fall in love with Mashweshwe, and Ngwani councillors spread the rumour that Matawani was weakened by Mashweshwe. Despite their constant nagging, however, Matawani refused to sever ties with Mashweshwe, so some of his commanders then called out their army on their own authority, a mutiny in the ranks. This army advanced on the single road leading to Mushweshwe's hideout at Tabobusiu, but the Sutu were prepared and rolled down massive boulders, crushing the Nguani. It was a great slaughter, made more astounding because both the Sutu and Nguani tradition has it that Matawani sent warnings to Mushweshwe. He was so angry about his rebellious generals, he wanted them crushed. Be careful what you wish for, they say. After this defeat, Matawani gathered the survivors together and faced those who rebelled. These Indunas confronted Matawani at a meeting, accusing him of despising their joint tradition and failing to listen to his own counsellors. They may have thought about this infighting more carefully, considering what was going to happen next. The Tlubi to the east had managed to pull themselves together under Chief Metlomakulu and attacked three Nguadi regiments at Mulman's Hook. And then the biggest threat of all popped up. Mzilikatsis and Debele. Matawani was in a bit of a bind. Internal strife compounded by external threats. It was a fight or flight moment and he decided wisely on flight. Some of his scouting expeditions had returned from the Transkar region by now and reported that the country was rich in cattle but also in Amakosa and Tembu military tradition. Still, Matawani ignored his counsellors once more and moved the Nguani people into the highlands of Amakosa territory, back over the Drakensberg, but this time to the southeast. His counsellors pleaded with him, apparently saying, We have been fortunate. We have conquered others and settled in a country. Let us stay and eat corn. Shaka has come and turned back. Mzilukatsi has come and turned back. If they come another day, we shall devise some scheme and fight them well. Matawani, as was his wont, ignored their pleas, despite his brother also, Hawana, assailing him, saying, There? Where? We have come a long way. We are not going anywhere else. We have already built here. Then he uttered the fatally insulting words, Has this fellow eaten a sheep's lung? It is he who has been sent to destroy our nation. The lung-eater was Matawani, and the allegation was a frightful affront. Matawani sent an army against his brother, and Hawana was killed after a fierce two-day battle. Matawani was a tyrant. He'd already killed another brother called Madalika, and now resistance to his plans collapsed. It was Matawani's stubborn and almost suicidal compulsion that was to lead to his people's final destruction at Umbalompo. The descent of the Drakensberg was and remains arduous. Finally, he and his few hundred people arrived at Umbalompo in 1828, where they were to run into a British regiment. Not just any old British regiment, but one that was sent out following that famous Ordnance 49 I mentioned a few episodes ago. Remember, Ordnance 49 made it illegal to mistreat the Koi Koi workers and began managing farmers more directly when it came to how they treated their labour. As the settlers around Grahamstown began to beg authorities for labour, action was taken. The original idea was for white indentured labour to be imported from England, but this never happened. Albany Landrost Major W. B. Dundas was growing more concerned. 
So he was to lead a commando against Matawani that ended in bloodshed. But his main reason to head off into the Transkai was really to secure labourers for the settlers of Albany. Everyone by now had heard about the unstable region to the north, full of roving bands of people, homeless, seeking shelter. The missionaries had taken these in along the Orange River, and the Causaland missionaries had reported on their trials and tribulations. By 1828, the stick of increased landlessness and the carrot of imported commodities had combined to make the Amakosa ever more willing to enter colonial service. Farmers found that many began showing up offering their labour, particularly the Trekboers, who found it easier to hire Amakosa on their distant farms. And here is the intersection of strands of history once more. The British were responding to the earlier Zulu raid. They were too late, of course, to do anything about this, but they were now in the area as Matawani Zingwani descended from the Drakensberg. Talk about wrong place, wrong time. The Ngwani were raiding as they went until they reached this place called Umbolompo, cradled in a natural amphitheater 20 kilometers west-northwest of Umtata on the headwaters of the Umtata River. It's extraordinarily beautiful, the steep slopes around this place covered in forests. By now, one of Matawani's praises sung by his poets was, The lazy one who consumes the grain of those who work hard. He was basically a brigand, a bandit king. We descended the mountains again. We came towards the people of the Kubunkuka. We saw peaceful people. We captured cattle in all directions, even to the Umzumfu. The Tembu people were acutely aware of this raiding party from the highlands of the Drakensberg. They were also distantly related to the Zulu. Dundas and his British commander rode past some of these destroyed villages, courtesy of Matawani, and confirmed the oral tradition. All desolation, all dead men, women and children, cattle and dogs, everything laid to waste and the whole country burnt black. Matawani and Gwani were going to reap the whirlwind. Lama Tembu had mobilized their own regiments in response when Dundas showed up with his 200-strong commander. Major Dundas was not actually a proper major, a military commandant. He just acted that way. But satisfied that the Amamponda were not under attack, he turned around and headed back to the Amamtembu chief called Ngubunkuka. The British soldiers and Khoikhoi gunmen were joined by the Tembu warriors, who then moved east of Mbashi, surrounding the Ngwani before dawn at Umbulombo on the 27th of August, 1828. If you head off to Google Earth and search Umbulompo, that is M-B-H-O-L-O-M-P-O, you'll find the spot where the massacre took place. The Tembu climbed the steep ridges behind the Ngwani Amizi, then attacked, driving the Ngwani out of their homes and into the British guns and their cannons. Historians now know that it was not Major Dundas, inverted commas, who set up this attack. It was Ngubunkuka, the Tembu chief. He called the shots quite literally, as that wonderful historian Jeff Perry's notes. Let's take a quick listen to the Nguani's own version of this fatal confrontation. Through these mountains we came to the country of Abatembu. Chaka had already been there. We found that the people of many villages had fled, and their cattle had been taken. We attacked the villages and took many cattle too. The headwaters of the Mtata River gush from the mountainside nearby. It's verdant and green. From there, Matawani sent out his warriors to attack the Amatembu, stealing their corn and living up to his name, the lazy one who consumes the grain of those who work hard. 
They raided all the way up towards the Nzimvubu River indeed, but ignored warnings that the Tembu had decided to call on the colonists in Grahamstown for help. We did not know that they had gone to call whites, reported the Ngwani oral history tellers. We settled down nicely. The first time the Tembus came alone to kill us, and there were not so many, and it was open country, we killed them nearly all. While that may be an exaggeration, what happened next was not. The Nguani are not shy about all of this. Yes, they say, we did indeed attack the Tembu, who were now facing a crisis. Both Mpondo oral history and colonial documents show that it was the Tembu king Ngubunkuka, and not Major Dundas, who orchestrated the destruction of the Nguani. I mean, wouldn't you, after Matawani had pulverized your villages and seized your cattle and eaten your corn and murdered your women and even children? The local missionary, Reverend K., who despised Dundas, by the way, blamed Ngumutkuka for what was going to be this massacre. Dundas, meanwhile, had found himself alongside about 5,000 Timbu warriors with his little commando. Also along for the possible treasure, the Tkaleka and the Mpondo Amakosa. So the Nguani were caught in their huts asleep by the sweeping British cavalry backed up by the Mtimbu. While some tried to escape, Dundas then opened up with his cannon. The region, as I said, is thick with forests. Some Nguani managed to make it into these thickets, which then caught fire as the cannon rounds and musket balls raked the area. The Tembu and Kaleka then indulged themselves, along with the British cavalry, in a bloodletting of note. The field was described by Reverend K. afterwards, and while he may have been prone to theatricals and exaggeration, there's no doubt that what lay before him was utterly shocking. Old, decrepit men with their bodies pierced and heads almost cut off, pregnant females ripped open, legs broken, hands severed. The hands had been severed by the Kaleka and the Timbu as they strove to tear off the women's ornaments. A scene of depravity! The British took more than 70 orphaned children home with them, or at least that is what the formal chronicles say. This was an old habit of the Trekboers when they raided in commandos to seize the cattle and the children to take home as child servants, and there's no doubt the British commando did the same. As for Matawani, the man from Zululand, he traipsed off over the Drakensberg and back home, seeking shelter from the new Zulu king Dingan at Umgungunglovu near Ulundi. Dingan allowed Matawani to live on the Tlomo Amabuto Ridge, less than a kilometre from his royal kraal, but before long, Dingan had him killed. Then he posthumously appointed Matawani as the Devil Chief and Great Chief of the Wicked, and had scores of his own enemies executed at Kwa Matawani, the place of Matawani. As with many other characters of our history, Matawani's incredible exploits could be turned into quite a movie. By now, another group of people had become known through the Cape, the Amfengu. Their tale is one of woe. They were refugees from the interior, and their oral history is packed with lessons for all of us about what happens when an organized life becomes disheveled, dilapidated, and riven by violence. One of my fellow students studying African history at Rose University in the mid-1980s was of the Mfengu clan, and his stories were truly amazing. Some of the more ideologically driven lecturers found it very difficult to accept what he said because it seemed to confound their carefully constructed academic image of the past. That the Mfengu were destitute is not debated. It's the why bit that has historians in a bit of a fritz. 
When the Mfengu first arrived amongst the Amakosa, Hinsa of the Kaleka received them with kindness. Eventually, about 10,000 of these refugees would stream into his territory. They were employed by the Amakosa in lowly jobs, as well as as herdsmen, and the Wesleyan missionaries in particular took a liking to the Mfengu, who then converted to Christianity in large numbers. They also became more hostile to Hinsa's Kaleka, and the more so as the Wesleyans began to chatter to the Mfengu, saying they appeared to be enslaved by Hinsa. That Kaleka chief didn't take too kindly to the Wesleyans meddling in his traditional hierarchical system. By now, the Wesleyans' Butterworth mission was established, and Hinsa was recognized as the Amakosa chief who had to be consulted on important matters. Unukwebe chief Tunga put it like this, we are but as dogs to Hinsa, as dust is to my foot. Which kind of puts things in perspective. Those living under control of the chiefs were commonly called his dogs, and those people could be Nguni, Sutu, San, Khoi, or colonial. The Trekpoors living as hangers-on around Hinsa's great place, for example, were also called his dogs, his Amabulu. The Mfengu were called Amabulu too. They were also Hinsa's dogs. Butterworth missionary George Shrewsbury took great exception to this, protesting against the term, and then annoying Hinsa no end by sheltering these Amabulu Mfengu when they were accused by his witch doctors of being witches. So now you know where these politicians who shout Shia Amabulu get that word. It goes back a long way in South Africa's patchy race relations and is just another of the cacophony of basic insults that pepper social media like a hyena's acid spittle. The engineer Geddes Baines, who built so many roads and other infrastructure around the Cape, he referred to Hinsa as an excellent model for Hercules. He was an impressive man, apparently, tall with outstanding physique. A British officer who saw him exclaimed, Hinsa is a very fine-looking fellow, as like our dear old George IV in his front face, as possible, strikingly so, although nearly black. At some point in this series, I'll have to do an episode looking at the vast array of skin colors in South Africa and what people back then said about it. Apparently, Hinsa was nearly black. We'll have to ponder what that means. By the time Hinsa died in 1835, colonial opinion of him had slipped somewhat from Hercules to Damocles. Not that Hinsa cared. He demonstrated a sarcastic contempt for colonial ways and he was suspicious of all settlers, and particularly the British. But then again, Hinsa was naturally suspicious of everything. It was his nature. He refused to travel to Grahamstown to visit the authorities, saying the British governor didn't visit him. He was also immensely jealous of his eight wives, and sometimes got up in the middle of the night to go see whether any were up to no good. These fears rose when Nklambe, then his eldest son Umdushan, and finally Ingrika died within a few months of each other. Nklambe succumbed finally to old age. His nephew and nemesis Ingrika passed from the complications caused by heavy drinking, and Umdushan died of syphilis. This end of the powerful Amakosa chiefs, one after another, at the end of the 1820s, is symbolic. The passing of Ingrika and Nklambe all the more, the sudden death of all these royal figures shook Hinsa. The recasting of the power structure of the frontier causa after the Nklambe, Nrika and Mdushani died meant this power passed to Nrika's eldest son, Makroma. He was the regent for the real heir, Sandile, and both became the principal figures in the continuing resistance and contest 
with the Cape Colony. But it was going to be Makoma's expulsion from the Kat River Valley that would precipitate the next frontier war of 1835, as you're going to hear next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, tot ziens. Thank you.